Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What makes me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Ellen Donnelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Excited. Before we get going, uh, let's kick it off with who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Sure. So I'm Ellen. I work in tech as a headhunter slash recruiter um, and soon to be career coach. So I've been working with early stage businesses on their talent strategy for about seven years now, basically helping fill the leadership teams uh, at sea level, one level below. And then I've also worked on accelerator programs, building companies from scratch. So my sweet spot is entrepreneurial talent and helping these people find the right jobs or build the right companies for their skill set. Why do I do what I do? I think you can always pick, like, join the dots looking backwards, right? But the the key for me has always been helping people really find themselves and their work and find the right opportunity for them at the right point in their lives. There's a huge kind of misnomer about recruitment being quite selfish but I think there's a lot of recruiters out there who genuinely care about people and the work that they do and I'd like to think that I'm one of them so I personally have struggled with finding the right job and and these kinds of everyday life concerns and I want to be able to support people with the knowledge that I have and yeah I love working with early stage businesses because no day is the same. What are the things that people look for when hiring beyond Mm -hmm. professionalism? It's a good question. I think there's often um, 
when people want to hire someone to work with them closely, they have in mind this kind of mythical creature who'll be both amazing at their job and fun to go to the pub with and probably agree with everything they already think. So a lot of the time you put someone in front of a team and say, this person has all the requisite skills. They're like, oh, they don't quite, you know, speak the way I thought they would speak or they haven't quite um, had the right career trajectory for the person I had in mind. So a lot of the time, as biased, as unbiased as people like to think that they are, they often come with this huge amount of baggage as to what a good candidate would look like or what a good fit for the team might be. And so it's an educational exercise enough to say, look, here's the criteria that are important for this role. Here's someone that matches them. If this isn't a fit, could you tell me what I've missed? And often it's, well, yeah, like the leadership team aren't getting on well and we really need someone that can pull us together. Okay, so empathy or team building is a really strong uh, attribute to the skill set. Why didn't you list that? And they think, well, it's just inherent, right? But then they meet someone that's the best salesperson in the world but can't build relationships. And then they think, oh, actually, this is the key. So a lot of the times people have unsaid characteristics in their mind and then it's a case of teasing them out. Um, And also, yeah, kind of, I like to push the mould when it comes to what the ideal candidate might look like, especially in a world where we have a lack of like gender diversity at board level and sea level. A lot of the um, traits or skill sets that someone might need at exec level often are, it's harder to find women with these skill sets if you're looking at a very senior level, just because they may have taken some time out of the workplace and therefore have not reached that certain you know stage of their career enough to have done all these things and ticked all these boxes. Um, but then a client will say, oh, no, but we need a woman because, you know, we haven't got any. And it's like, well, which of these criteria might you be able to flex on? And that's when you often kind of hit some difficulties when they say, oh, no, they, they have to have had all these experiences. So it's a case of compromise, I think, and just educating clients or if you're internal, you know, educating your leadership team about the reality of what a candidate marketplace looks like. So what advice would you give founders who are who are afraid of a mishire and they use that to justify certain biases i think that being afraid of a mishire is a you know totally fair assumption to start off with as a as you say it's a huge amount of um cost that goes into a, a hire both from a recruitment perspective the salary and then if it goes wrong then you know you're kind of starting that process all over again so the starting point should always be what are the three top things that we want this person to be good at? And actually, not just what have they done historically, because past performance doesn't necessarily indicate future success. What will they achieve in this role? What does six months, 12 months, 18 months in this role, what does good look like? And if you can paint that picture, you'll attract the people that want to build that and repel the wrong ones. So you might attract someone that's never done it before, but has that real appetite and actually repel the person that has done it before because they're like, I'm not going near that type of situation or that type of company size or scale again. And so I think that one of the ways to mitigate that risk is often, as I say, just thinking about what that journey will be like and trying to paint that picture for the candidate rather than saying, have you done X, Y, Z before? Have you scaled from 50 to 100? Or have you been an X type of SaaS organization? Because really that's not the indicator of success. It's willingness to do the job and it's the enthusiasm a lot of the time. Yes, skills and kind of credentials help. But if they can really take candidates on that journey, I think that's part of the key. The other adage, which everyone knows, is hire slow, fire fast, right? So the longer your process, bearing in mind people have lives and they want to kind of get a decision fairly quickly. But if you can expose them to as many different people in your process as possible, from investors to 
other leadership members to junior employees, you're giving that candidate as fair a representation of the work that they'll be doing and the people they'll be working with as possible. And it's a two-sided thing. I think that's often the piece of the puzzle that people forget about. It's not just can the um, candidate sell themselves, it's can the company sell themselves. So I often think don't hold back in terms of your scars and the things that aren't pretty. Tell the candidate all the things that are are potentially going to be an issue in this company let them decide if that's a kind of journey they want to go on themselves the job description which is the hook to sometimes get candidates in is so important in that regard sometimes you read a job description and it's like oh my god that's me that's my job and that feels amazing in startup land however you can go into a company this is the job description You go through a slow hiring process. You've met so many people. You're in love with the company. You can imagine yourself going together for, uh, for a long while. And then day one arrives and it's actually quite different than the work you thought you're going to be doing. Yeah. Does that ever happen? All the time. <laughs> I think we live in a world of uncertainties. And as much as people like to know for certain what their job will entail or what day one will be the reality is is that especially in startup land things shift so quickly so the priorities during the interview process might have changed by the time you join the company so I think that's one thing to bear in mind and just on both sides of the table be open to the fact that your role priorities might shift but if you know the the core skill the core thing that you bring as a candidate is not used in the role that you've come to begin to work in then you're in the wrong role like as much as you might want to kind of switch it up and try new things if you're a senior or experienced person and you know the thing that you're amazing at and you don't get an opportunity to do that at all in this new hire in this new opportunity then I would just say what why are you wasting your time the caveat to that is the junior people who have less understanding of what they might be good at or what they want to do I think these roles if they're slightly different go with it for a while and see if you know you surprise yourself but yeah I think it happens all the time because A, job descriptions are written by a recruiter who's not necessarily always been in that role or knows that much day-to-day, you know, the reality of it. Or let's take a founder who's building an exec-level team for the first time. It's their first startup. They don't know how a chief finance officer role works or a chief people officer role. They're, they're kind of going from their best guess of their network. And so my advice to people when they're building job descriptions isn't what do our competitors say or how does... It looks look and sound shiny it's again coming back to the problem that you're trying to solve what would an amazing result to this problem be what would good look like and how can we paint the picture of the, the sort of person that will actually have the skills to do that and keep job descriptions short like write the top three or four things that you want them to do and be and be able to you know bring to the table and by doing that you'll also eliminate people who you'll also You know, make sure that you don't miss out on great talent who read your job description and think, oh, I've only got six out of those 10 criteria, so I won't apply. Yeah. As we all know, there's a certain often gender bias around people that do and don't apply for roles um, based on what they can and can't do. So that's another one is just if you don't know what the role will entail, pick the problem that it's trying to solve and let someone kind of paint their own job description. That's the best advice if it's the first time you're building a role. I'd say... It's great advice because once you know what good or great looks like for a specific role or a project, it incentivizes you, but it also sets you up for the later stages of the process. So if I know this company is trying to scale internationally mm-hmm. and it excites me, but also scares me a little bit, yeah. I'll arrive to the interview more prepared. I'll do some research. I'll know I'm going to have to kind of 
get to a point where it doesn't scare me as much, where I have some sort of an idea mm-hmm. of how I would do it for these specific people. Um, so that's the effect. Before we go super, super granular on some of these practices, how many years have you been doing recruit, recruitment and talent sourcing? Coming up to seven. Coming up to seven. Yeah. Throughout the seven years of doing recruitment, mm-hmm. how many people did you say you hired? It'll be in the hundreds. Yeah, I've probably spoken to or interviewed, I realized the other day, over a thousand. So over a thousand interviews, that's countless hours. Mm-hmm. And I might be at my 10,000 Mark and Gladwell hours, but I'm not quite sure. They're probably by like year 10, I'll be there. <laughs> How quickly into an interview process, you know what you're dealing with? The type of person. Yeah. I think it's easy to say, you know, straight away, but actually that's when your um, biases are working and they're just telling you that this is someone you've seen before and you know that type of person. I think by 20 minutes, you have a pretty good sense of whether this person has the right skills or attitude for the job. People surprise you, but generally, yeah, it takes about 20 minutes, half an hour um, to, to really get a full sense of someone. One of the things that are you know, common to successful hires, if there are any, like how do they come across in those initial mm-hmm. conversations um, what their approach is, follow-up emails, proactivity, yeah. uh, spending time on niceties on the phone, like are these necessities or...? Yeah, something I realised uh, fairly early on in my career hiring executives, the more established someone becomes in their career, the more senior, often the nicer they become, at least to recruiters. <laughs> There's this kind of um, shift that happens when people know their worth, they know what they're amazing at, they know what they can do well, and they are a bit more relaxed in the process because they know that they will land the right job for them. Often when people are still figuring out what it is that they do and they're not really sure of their worth or they haven't really kind of found their success yet, they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder and it really comes across in that interview stage. So I think that the the good people are often really open about, you know, their salary. They're, they're much more... Um, tolerant to a process that may be taking a bit longer than they would like or to feedback taking longer than they would like probably because they've seen it enough times to know how these things work but generally you know if the nicer you can treat people throughout a process regardless of the outcome the more likely you are to get a call back it astounds me the number of people who after a rejection don't even reply to say thanks for letting me know you know rejection is a tenuous topic and there's good and bad ways to reject candidates. I get that. And the absolute worst is ghosting and people just completely going off the radar. But niceties go a really long way. I think people forget that recruiters and even scheduling assistants, admin assistants, they have a huge amount of say in these processes. We had this guy not long ago who came into the interview and there were three interviewers in the room. I wasn't in the room, but I got told about his attitude was to pick the person he thought was the most important and focus all of his energy and attention on them for for the full hour, thinking they were the decision maker. Turns out they weren't. And even if they were, they probably wouldn't have liked that style. And they would have said, look, we don't want someone that completely ignores 60% of the room in this interview. So, yeah, all of the things that make you a good, decent human being help you get a job. <laughs> I'd agree, and I would also say that if you're a recruiter, you spend six, seven, eight hours of your day doing that. It could be a day with 10 to 15, 20 calls. If you could be the candidate that lights up that person's day, yeah. you've already won. Yeah. Regardless if you get the job or not, you've already, you're already in the, in the good books. Yeah. And if you can be the one that puts a smile on that person's face and makes their life just a tad bit easier, yeah. less, of a, less, of a, less of a drag, then you're already in a better place. 
I'm smiling because I remember this time when I was at my desk and this guy called me out the blue on my desk phone and he, Ellen, it's me, Tony. I was like, who are you? <laughs> you just emailed me. Bear in mind, I message hundreds of people often in a day. So I quickly like searched my inbox to be like, who's this person? And he was so excited by the email. He, he was like, you've emailed me about my job. This is my job. And I was like, okay, great. Should we have the interview now? And his energy, he was just I mean, it was another level, right? So it was a completely unforgettable experience. And he wasn't really right for the role. But because of the way he acted in that situation and really kind of showed me how much he cared, I was like, let's get this guy in. And I put him in front of the client. I said, bit of a left-field candidate, bit of a curveball. He he has a energy of a puppy um, for this role that you might not have thought you needed this person for. But you have to meet him because I've never met someone so enthusiastic about what you're doing. And I'm not saying you need to kind of fake it and pretend to be like this crazy ball of energy if you're not. But as you say, it's like, how do you make that recruiter feel? How do you be memorable and, and, and kind of change it up to, for the better? Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What are some of the tips you'd give folks who are looking for working startups? Before qualifying the specific companies, mm -hmm. why work for a startup? Should you, what type or when in your career should you go work for a startup? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's a huge amount of opportunity that exists in startup land. There's, you know, industries being literally turned on their head by tiny companies being built out of the basement. So it's no wonder that we see and hear the success stories of startups that go boom to want to make people want to join them. I think that it's easy to imagine that startup life will be all kind of glitz glamour and big investment raises and hanging out with your buds, eating pizza and wearing trainers. And I can see the appeal for people that are currently in a bit more of an established, let's dare I say, boring kind of industry or whatever or role. I think that startups are amazing at certain inflection points in your career. So either early on when you've just started out, it's 
there's no better training ground to go in, see how things really work on the inside. I say work in inverted commas. Startups are a bit like a playground. Like, don't go in expecting to learn from the best and see the most professional outfit you've ever, you know, dreamed of because you won't. You'll actually see how most people are winging it and they're making it up as they go along. But join a startup that's growing, that has decent leadership and decent mentor type opportunities, as in people that will mentor you, you'll fly. Like, there's some people I've worked with who joined, let's say, Deliveroo at kind of 30, 40 people and stayed till they were four, 500 in London. And the things they were doing at like 24, 25 were just uncomparable elsewhere, but they hit gold, right? They were in the minority. The reality is that a lot of startups don't scale or they run out of funding. And so, you know, there's a sort of darker side. So I guess my, my advice is to join a startup with your eyes wide open about the risk that it can bring. And I mean financial risk because... A lot of companies do run out of money and then you're on the job market again looking for a job. And that's part and parcel of the experience. And, you know, the winners exceed the um, risk that that entails. Um, So, yeah, do it when you're figuring out who you are, what you're about, because you'll get to wear lots of hats. Do it if you've been completely micromanaged for a long time because you'll really relish the opportunity to spread your wings and just give it a go and and figure it out as you go along, make mistakes and not get kind of punished for it. I wouldn't do it if you've figured out what you're amazing at and money's important for you and so is stability and being at, you know, let's say you're saving for a wedding or let's say, you know, you're about to have your first child. Not that those life stages are the only life stages that this occurs, it's just so happens. I would, at that point in your life, be like, how can I join a company that really lets me own my value and build and establish myself as a professional in this field? Because the reality is is that a lot of startups call it marketing or call it product or call it whatever, and you end up doing a watered-down version of it because they haven't got the budget to do it properly, or you end up doing five different jobs and you get frustrated or you do the menial work because that's all that they can give you and you don't actually build on your skill set or you don't get the salary you deserve. So I'm not saying it's bad necessarily, but it's just for some people, it doesn't make sense to join at that stage when they could be getting three times more for their worth in a good, proper company learning from professionals in their field. So I think I'm probably a good example of that recently when I changed from working in a more of an agency environment to going in-house for a startup. I really wanted to get like amazing at talent not just good I wanted to really hone my craft and be taught by kind of industry leaders around interview techniques and work with um, incredible candidates and so on and I joined a startup and actually I knew the most in the room about that thing and then I wasn't actually really able to do much of it because budget restrictions and so on so and I was just bought a house so money was a bit of a uh, financial kind of concern for me as well so I think that was a kind of a perfect storm there but yeah generally join a startup if you if you have a bit more risk tolerance and you're still figuring out what it is that you do or build one as well at that stage looking back at your own experience having known everything you've known about startups about hiring some missteps are unavoidable mm-hmm. we all go through them yeah so before talking about the silver linings of, of a misstep let's talk about a few of the ways to qualify a startup to work for. Mm-hmm. 
I think caring about the problem that they're trying to solve is a pretty big one. You're going to be working longer hours for less pay. So you need to be waking up every morning and really giving a shit about what that company are doing in the world. Not just how it looks on your CV, not just, you know, the, the sound of working for this kind of company. Genuinely being like, if this company or this product didn't exist, the world would be worse for it. Um, so I think that's a big one. And and there are a lot of startups that have been created because people have money going and they want to just build something for the sake of it. And they haven't thought deeply about the problem that they're solving. And actually, I don't even necessarily think they are adding value to the world. Sometimes it's distracting from the real value of something else that they're trying to disrupt. So number one, care about the problem. And, you know, there's a, literally a startup flavor for everything out there for, for whatever your tastes what you know whatever you're interested in you'll probably find a startup doing something along that realm number two is how have they thought about the role like have they thought about the role because a lot of the time they haven't they've just sort of thought well we should have someone doing something like this because that's how a normal org chart looks right and then they look for someone that vaguely fits that mold and sure enough expectations aren't aligned because no one really knows what good looks like so ask them a lot of difficult questions about why does this role exist? What will this role achieve? Why would someone like me be good for the role? And if they can't give you a good answer to those questions, I would walk away. The third piece would be the team. So A, the leadership team, what makes them uniquely placed to solve this problem? And I don't necessarily mean they need a track record of 10, 15 years doing it before. They need to deeply care about it. So um, there's this flexible working company I'm looking at at the moment who um, the founder has had to do flexible working her whole life because of an illness. So although she's not built a company before, you know that there's going to be a huge amount of blood and sweat and tears that have gone into building that product. So look for something like that that makes the leadership uniquely placed and then ask who will your sponsors be? Who will your mentors be in that role? Are they people you want to learn from and work with? If you can't see anybody in your day-to-day kind of team that you necessarily want to be like who who you'd look up to or learn from again I think walk away you never want to be the smartest person in the room did you ever experience a misstep in your professional career yeah absolutely I mean in uh, October I started working for a company that I essentially took the role against my best judgment to be honest with you I even have a recording on my phone of um, reasons that I'm probably not, it's probably not the right role for me. And I just decided to ignore them and uh, and take the job when it came down to the offer because I wanted a new job. And it was a leadership role and it was, you know, near to home and it was all these things that I could kind of rationalise. But the, the judgment piece actually was against my gut feel. So my intuition was telling me something wasn't quite right. And had I really honed in on that and been true to myself, I probably would have avoided quite a costly mistake. So I didn't also do my due diligence, right? So did I speak to the team? No. Did I meet the team properly? No. Did I ask the hard questions? No. Um, So I wouldn't have advised me in my shoes to take that role. People make mistakes. And I think that a lot of the time we beat ourselves up for those mistakes and we think, well, I should have known better. And um, this makes no sense now looking back. But how much more colourful and rounded a human being are we for our mistakes and for the things that have gone wrong? Because you're much closer to the right version of what you're supposed to be doing through going through those hard times. So yeah, absolutely. I think for the first time in my life, I feel much more equipped to be a better recruiter or career coach, because I've genuinely felt the pain of a role that went wrong, like every day feeling anxious going to work and feeling kind of 
the the lack of sleep as a result of feeling like I was in the wrong place you know put a real strain on my relationships as well because I was just such a bad version of myself um eventually I thought it doesn't matter that I've only been here two months like this isn't worth the pain I'm going through it's not the reward isn't worth this potential long period of downtime so yeah I'm I'm familiar with the the need to move on you said it's a like a misstep like that is costly um I'd like to know more about costly how mm-hmm. but also it's funny because we have all these uh, mental algorithms of qualifying startups and choosing the the next play and then we also have to add the another dimension which is our gut feeling yeah the thing we can't explain the thing that is more abstract but it tells us more about ourselves and that opportunity than anything else how do you uh, eliminate the, the the those voices that kind of go against our gut I think it's about whose voices are they what is the voice that's speaking loudest and And if it is a societal kind of in inverted commas they what will they say and then you're kind of looking around the room at who are these people because the people I love and who know me they don't care whether I leave my conscious doesn't care whether I leave it's just this kind of feeling that we should be doing something our CV should look a certain way we should have hit a certain milestone by a certain age and actually the only person that has to live with themselves day to day and that decision is you and if you're suffering, then it doesn't matter what they think or how it looks on paper because the reality is, is that you need to be comfortable with who you are and authentic in your decisions. So I think if you can strip away um, the shoulds um, and just listen to yourself, that's the biggest thing. I try to fight the feeling that I should leave my job because of all these reasons, right? I'm a recruiter. I've looked at loads of CVs that look copy and I, I dislike that. And then actually when it's you, you don't care. Um, I was at a... birthday meal and I had a breakdown in the toilet I was so like distraught about how my career was going and it was in that moment that I thought I'm quitting work tomorrow it shouldn't have to get to that point but the reality is is that we often want to put on a front where we think everything's fine and it will get better but some things just aren't meant to be and I think the sooner we can kind of release what isn't meant for us the, the faster we'll find the things that are I've found myself overstaying my welcome in in jobs because of that because I was so determined that To flip it around that I didn't realize that I'm already too far gone mm-hmm. I can't save this I can't change those people uh, this product is not going anywhere and I don't know probably ego yeah it keeps us kind of uh, stuck it's asking yourself what it what am I working towards like is there an end goal that's worth this pain so for example you might be in a company that's about to exit if you're struggling because the workload's high and your stress is high but you think the exit's imminent It's probably worth persevering for a bit longer just to have that kind of experience and know what that feels like and go through the you know the, the story and also hopefully gain some money at the end of the tunnel but if you have no real sense of where the company's going and you don't really want your career to go in that trajectory anyway or you know you don't necessarily believe in the people that you're working for or want to work with them through that next stage then you just have to ask yourself if, is it worth it and I think that you resilience is a buzzword in today's kind of society amongst things like adaptability and emotional intelligence and resilience is key um but as you say what's false resilience who are you kind of trying to prove something to and are you going to end up as a better person for going through that or worse and often it's worse because you're more jaded and you're more bitter or burnt out and um mental health in the workplace is a really real kind of fragile topic and if you've noticed yourself having dark difficult thoughts every day and not sleeping and not eating properly and not exercising 
that mental struggle isn't worth the pain in, in my opinion i want to go and i want to i want to talk about negotiating just a little bit because yeah. we're talking about hire slow and fire fast and one of the things that sometimes slow hiring processes are negotiations mm-hmm. and as a recruiter you've probably seen it a million times the right candidate for the right company and they can't seem to make it work mm-hmm. does that happen it happens and then when it happens to the extent that it's not working you have to question if the incentives are aligned so typically if you're joining an early stage company to solve a problem that you care about in a role that you care about you will be open to the salary that is set out from the start and if you've got all the way through a process and you've been clear with your intentions for what you want at the end of it um, in terms of salary and it doesn't work someone along the way has been lying because if you're working with a good recruiter or you're working with a transparent hiring manager you shouldn't get to the end of the process and it not be a fit because that should be number one like As much as we want to say we go to work for the contacts and the experiences, we go to work to make money as well. So be very open up front at the start about what it is that you want in terms of your salary or what you're currently earning. Typically when it goes wrong is when hiring managers um, completely curveball the candidate and you know, mm. lowball them with a really bad offer because they think, well, if they wanted to work for us enough, then they would take a salary cut and they would... take equity and not this salary and i think again that comes down to mismanaged expectations find out what's important to the candidate at this stage of their life how willing are they how open are they to take a cut if they're not don't waste their time with a stupid offer because you just completely undermine your credibility and again with a candidate if you've got this expectation in the back of your mind that you're going to get a 30 pay increase from your current role but you only decide to say that at the last minute and get frustrated when they won't give it to you you only have yourself to blame because you've not kind of aligned yourself with their hiring process in the role i think a lot of people expect that once they're the desired candidate they can kind of play it to their own means and get whatever they want out of the process but Leverage. remember you're you're starting a relationship with these people it's not a transaction like a casino right you're, you're actually building trust and you're showing someone who you are so don't throw too many curveballs around money i think that the more transparent in the early stages the better So two learnings I'm taking from here is a when negotiating it's not just about the outcome it's also about the process mm-hmm. so you could get the outcome you want but come across as an unpleasant someone who's not nice to work with starting off with uh, with uh, everyones you know having their guards up and not trusting and feeling a little bitter yeah so that's a that's one and I think there's also a problem that's unique for startup worlds and that's founders who are so in love with their product or their mission and that they sometimes overvalue what it would mean to work for their company. Yeah. Now, they have to be fully convinced that this company is going to change the world and become a unicorn. Fair enough. But if it's, you know, pre-seed or seed money mm-hmm. only and you're trying to sell that vision to candidates, these people are taking a huge risk by, by coupling with you and coming to work for you. Yeah. They're risking their reputation because who knows what culture this company is going to grow into. They're risking their time and resources and, Who knows, maybe in three or six months, they'll leave you worse off than they were before they started the role. So yeah. what advice would you give founders to mitigate their love and passion for the product when it comes to mm-hmm. negotiating with new hires? I mean, if I could wear a, a T-shirt into these kind of situations, it would say, no one cares about your company as much as you do. Like, as sad as it is, they don't. So I think that that's the kind of base level starting point. A founder needs to recognize that 
they might wake up and go to bed thinking about their company and live, breathe and die their company. And that's great because a lot of these things, these things don't come to fruition if that isn't the case. You need someone that's committed to that cause. But there is no way that someone who's not worked for your company yet can care that deeply about your company. To them, it's just a concept. It's just a bakery. You know, it's something in the display window that they like the sound of and they might want to try. But until they've kind of experienced it, they don't know. So I think founders need to strip away their ego in these um, conversations and think, okay, my hope is that this person in front of me will care about this company as much as I do one day because we'll work together and they'll see what we're trying to do and they'll put their own investment and time and energy into it and get to that point. But I think it's very arrogant when a founder just assumes from the start, the get-go, that someone was deeply you know, committed to this company. So the best thing they can do in that instance is try and understand what's the motivation of a candidate. What what are they hoping to get out of this next stage of their career? Is it to learn? Is it to build their skill set in a specific area? Is it to be part of a rocket ship of growth? Is it to lead a team? Really get granular in their expectations and their hopes and dreams and build experience for them that they have to say at the end of the day, wow, I wouldn't have had that if it wasn't for that founder believing in me and giving me these opportunities. How soon do you think people realize they've made a wrong step and how do you recommend they bow out if they mm-hmm. have made a wrong step? I mean, generally with these things sooner because you're less embedded in an organization. If a recruiter got you into the role, um, they often have a rebate period where they can get their money back from the recruitment fee if there was a wrong hire. So if you're the person who knows you've joined the wrong company, the wrong role, A, save yourself the pain and, and B, the company. But before you jump to that conclusion, I think it's worth being completely open in your communication with your hiring manager, the CEO, depending on who you work with, explaining, right, this isn't the role that I thought I'd signed up for. The work is different to what I thought. The company's doing something different. Am I crazy or is this true? And what's their read on it? Because you might learn something through being open that you wouldn't have otherwise if you just keep to yourself and run away because there might be something going on behind the scenes that is short term. There might be that they also see that the role is wrong for you and they're feeling guilty. And actually there's this other opening and this other department that you weren't aware of because you hadn't spoken about it. I think it's very similar to like romantic relationships and being open, you know, direct and honest in your communication. If you've got a problem, you keep it to yourself and you bitch and moan about it to your friends and family. That problem isn't going to solve itself. It's only going to manifest more and more. But if you say like, hey, I'm noticing this thing. How do you feel? You might open up this whole kind of other thing that's available to you in this relationship or this job or it might really kind of close that down in mutual terms and go, yeah, it's not working. Like, let's part terms on good work. Let's <laughs> part terms. I think uh, once you get to that point, if, if someone unfortunately gets to that point, um, no one's winning at that point. Mm-hmm. When you realize you're not doing the job you want to do, you're not doing the work you want to do, then there's no there's no one winning. The company's suffering, yeah. you're suffering. Like, you're at, a, you're at an impasse. You, wanna, you, have, you have to go back. So I think minimizing the damage that it does to yourself to your well-being and also minimize minimize the damage that it does to the company would be the respectful way to go about it and if you can position it as you're not just in it for yourself in your own game you're actually trying to educate this company about how they can learn from the mistake that they've made so they don't keep repeating it so it comes back to what i was saying the more honest and open you can be the better for both parties i think there is a huge risk that people worry about which is if i'm honest about not liking it i'm going to get fired all i'll say to that is it can happen, 
But if you get fired for telling someone that you don't like your job, you're better off not being there in the first place. Obviously, people are in difficult financial situations and can't afford to not have a job. So it's a tenuous one. But ultimately, the more open you feel that you can be, the better. What did you have to give up on in your personal life in order to be where you are professionally? I guess I feel that I've come a certain point in my career that I'm happy with, but I always feel like there's more I could have done or that could be further along or I could have achieved more. So it's quite difficult to imagine that I've made loads of sacrifices to be here when I think of all the sacrifices maybe had I made, I would be somewhere else, let's say. But generally, I feel that the reason that I have been successful, that I've built a good network, that I've got to a certain salary level or that I've opened up opportunities for speaking or writing or communities that I'm part of is because I put myself out there and I don't think of time spent at weekends or evenings or today or whatever as a loss of my personal space. I don't worry too much about Ellen's personal life versus Ellen's work life and how the two conflict. I try and build those two as closely kind of linked together as possible so that I don't ever resent the time I spend working there's a balance to sh- to get right, isn't there? Obviously, you don't want to be working all the time, checking emails at 2am and going, it's fine, it's personal. But the sacrifices I think I've made are around some of the more relaxing social elements of my life. Like I don't, for example, go out day drinking on a Saturday and a Sunday because I would, A, not be productive on a Monday, but often I'm also doing things on those days that are kind of work-related. Like I build a lot of friendships with people who on paper might not seem like you know they, they might be people that I actually met through work and I build friendships with and then I continue to be in their lives but it's not because I'm trying to get personal gain I just enjoy doing it yeah. and so yeah to, I, I have to put myself out there in order to get opportunities um I often help people when it's not completely convenient to me and I, I always know that these things come back around so yeah I think the more you put into something isn't anything in life the more you get back so I don't think of anything that I've done that was work-related and difficult as a sacrifice. There's something to be said about the long play, mm-hmm. about building relationships, fostering relationships, and I think that's huge, and that's a good advice that's, uh, that counters the, the, the ever-growing pace of things today. There is the work you need to do. Going back to the job description, yeah. there is what needs to get done, what's the standard it needs to get done, and what will I be fired for not doing Fine, do that. <laughs> Try and do that within your nine to five or nine to six. And if it takes a little longer, do that as well. But then there is the work that's outside of work. Yeah. And that's building the relationship. That's having the 30 minute phone call with the colleague that had a rough day. Yeah. So yes, it is work. But it also means about being you know, professionally available to another human mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a friendly, in a more humane, empathic capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's not about... The career isn't about the individual, it's about the community. And they say it takes a village to raise a child, but I think, you know, it takes a community to have a good career because look at any successful person in the world. They've got mentors, they've got a good partner, they've got a good leader with them or whatever it is. It takes people around you to believe in you and support you. And I I haven't got where I've got because I just sit at home thinking and and working hard. I, I get places because I ask for help I've always been like the sort of person that will go who has done what I want to do before how can I get them to share that wisdom with me and that advice and so because I've been so grateful to have people you know around me throughout my career I want to give back as much as possible I think it's not like I've reached some kind of heights of my career anyway that I have loads of people asking me for advice necessarily but when it does happen I want to help and also 
when um, in recruitment world, people come to you asking, have you got any jobs? Nine times out of 10, the jobs that you're working on won't be a fit for them, right? So there's a lot of disappointing people in recruitment. But if you can take the old 20 minute call and say, okay, I don't have anything for you, but speak to XYZ person and, and, and go to this resource, that often comes back around to help. And that's not why you do it. There's a, obviously Adam Grant, the um, organizational psychologist, talks about givers and takers. And some people givers, they just give, give, give and don't expect anything back. Some people take and they just only want to take. And there's matches who kind of give and expect a bit back in return at some point. I've been told I'm a bit of a matcher, so I'm not going to pretend I'm just a giver. I also get called transactional, but I think that's just because I I have to work quickly in recruitment. You have to make quite quick decisions in order to be effective. If I just speak to everybody that wants a job and none of them are right for my roles, I'm never going to make the placements and help people that I can. Are there any topics that we didn't talk about that you would wanna that you would wanna cover or, or use this stage to uh, promote? I think that we've talked about this to an extent, but when it comes to choosing a career path or deciding what to do with your job area, and I, I, I use the word job lightly because a lot of us are creating our own jobs. We're becoming self-employed and starting companies and multi-hyphenates and all the rest of it. When it comes to that, I think that it's easy to get swayed by money and swayed by title and the shoulds and so on, but... If you spend enough time on your own understanding who you are, what you're about, what do people praise you for, what do you add the most value in and so on and so forth, what you come out with is a list of kind of qualities and traits that aren't a job description, but they are core to who you are as an individual. And this is what I do in my coaching with people. It's like stripping away all the labels and all of the things that we think we need to match to a CV, to a job description. It's going, okay, who am I? What do I deeply care about? So we just spoke about you know me meeting people like for me connection is one of my core values if I can't connect deeply with people through the work I do I'm going to be frustrated for example so that's something I'll seek I'm a really big extrovert in some ways and a really big introvert in others so I need a good mix of time alone time with people and everybody's got these things not everybody can reel them off because they don't spend that much time thinking deeply about it but my advice is before you join a company or before you create a business think about how you are wired, uniquely wired, that makes something good idea for you to do or a bad idea with your time. Because the reality is, is, as I said, you're the one doing it day to day. How do you experience your day? How do you experience these phone calls or these meetings or these the writing that you have to do? And just, yeah, gear yourself up for success by knowing who you are. Before we wrap up, what is the best way to get in touch with you and where can we learn more about your work? Yeah, so I've got uh, LinkedIn, I'm fairly active, Twitter, um, I've got a website. My full name is Ellen Kate Donnelly. I'm pretty active across all social channels. So um, please get in touch. I'd love to hear if this has resonated, if you want any free career advice or do's and don'ts if you're trying to make a decision. I'm Yeah, as I say, I always know that these things are um, better put out there in the world and um, people can benefit from my experience. I want to help them. Excellent. Ellen Donnelly, thank you so, so much. Thank you so Pleasure much for having, having you here. It's been amazing. Thank you. See you next time.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.